Well, the title of this morning's message is Love Without Thought of Return. We're going to look at Luke chapter 10 this morning, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're going to look at it in reference to this thought, loving without thought of return. This message came out of several conversations I've had over the past few months. I've had opportunity to share the lessons I've learned over the past 30 years. One of the lessons that I keep having to learn (laughs) is loving without thought of return. The first time I learned this lesson was about 25 years ago. I and my first husband, who's gone on to be with the Lord, we took in his nephew at the age of eight. He was a very troubled young boy. His mother was unable to care for him for a very long time. And his grandparents were in their 70s and unable to handle him. And the only other family there was, was I and my husband. So I prayed about it. (laughs) And I believe the Lord wanted us to take him in. But again, he was a very troubled young boy. He was hostile. He lied constantly. He stole constantly from anybody and everybody. It's very embarrassing at church. (laughs) To having this kid that you've now taken as your own, robbing people. (laughs) So I had decided that when we took him in, I would love him as my own, no matter what. This kid is now mine. And I interceded for him. That he was my own. And I did everything in my power and everything in my strength to give him everything he needed so he could grow up to be a good, upstanding young man who knows Jesus. (laughs) I didn't know then what I know now. You see, I thought if I loved him enough, if I loved him good enough and hard enough and long enough and strong enough, it would heal his heart. That it would undo the bad things that other people had done to him. He was troubled because he was hurt. He was troubled because he felt abandoned. He was troubled because he felt like nobody really loved him. So I thought, if I just love you enough, it will fix you. I wanted so much to fix him. (laughs) I was wrong. It took me a long time to figure that out. That the only love that can heal a human heart is the love of Jesus Christ. So one day, I went into his room to get the laundry, and again, I'm working really hard at loving him. I'm interceding hours and hours. I'm crying my eyes out over this kid. I want him to be whole and healthy and well. And I walk into his room one day, and on his dresser, he's created a little hall of fame. (laughs) The people he loves. The first one was his mom. He never took care of him. Even when he was with her, she never took care of him. She never protected him. She let bad things happen to him. Then it was his grandparents who loved him, but couldn't take care of him didn't have the ability to take care of him. Wanted to, but really couldn't. And then there was his uncle, the man I was married to at the time, who left all the taking care of him to me. (laughs) I'm thinking, hands on hips, this is not fair. (laughs) They're not doing any of this work. They're not crying their eyes out. They're not interceding. They're not having to deal with his brokenness minute by minute of every day, trying to help him become what God wants him to be. So I'm standing there going, this is not fair. Where's my picture? Where's my honor? Where's my thank you so much for doing everything for me? (laughs) Well, I'm sure you can imagine what God's response was, right? (laughs) I heard him very clearly. He said, you know, when you get to heaven, 
I am not going to ask you how many people love you. Ouch! <laughs> he said, it is not your job to make sure you're loved. It's your job to love. You see, the problem was, one, that I thought I could fix him. We can't fix people. Only Jesus fixes people. And the second thought was, I thought I deserved a thank you. I thought I deserved love in return. But that's not how God loves. God does not love us so that we'll love him back. He loves without thought of return. The love God gives us is truly free. The love God gives us always stays the same. You see, he loves us on our good days, and he loves us on our bad days, and he loves us when we got our hands on our hips thinking we're all that. <laughs> he loves us no matter what. Because his love is not based on my good behavior or my good intentions. It's not based on anything but the fact that he is love. Now, the Bible tells us that he is love. That word is a Greek word, agape. Now, I'm going to purposely say it wrong all through this message. I'm going to tell you now. You know Greek. I know I'm saying it wrong. I call it agape. Okay? I've always heard it as agape. I'm going to call it agape. It's actually agape, which is, <laughs> which is way too hard to say. <laughs> so, God is agape love. First John 4.16, it says this. And I'm going to add the word agape. We have known and believed the agape love that God hath toward us. God is agape love. And he that dwelleth in agape love dwelleth in God, and God in him. The New Testament uses two words for the word love. The word agape and the word phileo. Now, I've heard teachings on this my whole Christian life. That's why I call it agape. <laughs> I didn't really know that you can actually use those words interchangeably. You see, agape love is about commitment, faithfulness, and an act of your will. We can agape love people we don't know. We can agape love people we don't like. We can agape people that are our enemies. Because it's not based on anything in our emotions. Agape love is not based on emotion. It's based on will. And yes, we can agape love our family. Sometimes that's the only way we do love them. <laughs> this child I was trying to raise, there was nothing in me going, Ushi gushy, I love you so much. It was, no, I want to rescue you. I love you. Don't you understand? You're destroying yourself. I want to stop that. I am committed to you all of your life to make sure you have what's best for you. That's God's love. He says, I, it doesn't matter what I cost. We know that, right? He says, it doesn't matter what it costs. Whatever it costs for you to get the highest and best for your life, that's the price I'm willing to pay with our thought of return. I'm not going to give my son for you so that you will love me, so that you will serve me, so that you will work for me. God has angels to serve. He's not looking for servants. He's looking for people who will represent him, who will purpose in the heart to agape love. That's why you can agape love your enemy. Jesus never says, feel warm and fuzzy for the people who hate you. Never says that. In fact, God never tells us how to feel. Ever. He only tells us how to love. By choice. By decision. So agape love is really about what I choose to do. 
You see, love is only known by action. When I'm loving this kid who's so in need of being healed, <laughs> I'm crying out to the Lord, interceding, crying my eyes out. Lord, I love this kid so much. Why isn't he changing? Why doesn't it make a difference for him? I didn't know it then, but I was doing the same thing. Because I'm thinking I am so good because I love this kid who's so hard to love. <laughs> it was a long time ago. I'm, I'm getting better. <laughs> and while I'm crying my eyes out over this kid, the Lord says to me, do you think you get brownie points for how you feel? Now, when God asks you a question like that, <laughs> he already knows the answer. <laughs> he wants you to know the answer. <laughs> so I was like, Yes, I think I do should be earning some kind of reward because this is really hard. Doesn't this merit something? This is really hard. <gasps> Loving people who don't love you back is hard. And he says, no, no brownie points. He says, when you get to heaven, I'm not going to ask you how much emotion you had in your heart. But I might ask you, did you love in my name? What did you do that love? He says, the Bible went to a lot of <laughs> trouble to tell us what love looks like. It looks like charity. We don't use that word much in the terms that King James did. King James was looking for a word that would describe agape love. Love without thought of return. And the closest they could get in the English language was the word charity. You see, if I'm watching TV and I see starving babies, my heart goes out. My heart says, I, do I know them? Do I know their names? Do I know where they live? No, but my heart says, I want what's best and highest for you. My compassion is stirred. Compassion of Christ. Reach out. Feed the hunger. Okay? That's agape love. Am I expecting a thank you? Am I expecting anything from them? Will I ever meet them? No. I'll never meet the people that I get to far away until I get to heaven. No thought of return. Charity was the closest they could get. I told this story before, when the missionaries were sent here, that I used to give to a ministry years ago called Compassion Ministries, which fed hungry children and told them about Jesus. And I had done that for several years, not knowing. See, I'm just practicing my agape love. I'm seeking somebody else's highest and good. There's no emotion in that. It's not, I love you so much, I want to help you. It's, no, you are one of God's created children. You need help. I will help you. Not about love and emotion and how much I like you. None of that. And what I found is after several years, there was political unrest, and missionaries had to leave the country. But what I found myself saying was, God, what about our children? <laughs> the ones we're feeding, God, what about them? See. All of a sudden, filet started to kick in. The warm and fuzzies, I don't just love you from afar. I'm really concerned about your welfare. Wherever we sow, wherever our treasure goes, our heart will go also. So when we give charity, we don't understand it. There's a principle there. We're sowing love. We're sowing agape love. Matthew 5, 4 and 4 says this. This is Jesus speaking. I say unto you, love your enemies. Agape, your enemies, not phileo. Agape, your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. No emotions are involved in that kind of love. 
You can love somebody who hates you. You can love somebody who wants to despitefully use you. Now, is that easy? But you can do it by choice. We have the power of the Holy Spirit to make the choice to love when others don't love us in return. Agape love, again, is committed love. It's Jesus' kind of love that says, I am committed to you. I am committed to your highest and best, whatever that looks like. In uh, John 13, 35, it says this. This is Jesus speaking. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if ye have agape love one to another. Agape love always points to the love of Jesus. This kind of love is peculiar. It's peculiar. You know why it's peculiar? Because humans know that humans are self-centered by nature. They do not put other people before themselves. I always think of uh, Nancy going door to door on Saturday morning and trying to agape people who are skeptical. Why are they skeptical? Because you must want something from them. So they go every other week and they pick up trash and they hand out food and they minister to people in need with no thought of return. You see, the only way other people can see the love of God in us is when we're thinking about loving without thought of return. Because if we think, oh, you're going to come to my church, they're going to know that. They have to know that you love them just because Jesus loves them without thought of return. As believers, we are God-centered, so we are supposed to be agape-centered. Now, there is this other phileo word. Like I said, in the Bible, God never tells us to phileo him. It's a warm and squishy kind of look. It never says that. We have to understand, is God's love warm and squishy? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is passionate. <laughs> okay, but God never tells us we have to feel a certain way. He says, I want you to love me. I want you to agape me. I want you to make the decision that when I tell you to do something you don't want to do because you love me, you do it anyway. Because if we understand agape, that God is only seeking our best and highest, and he says, do this over here, we go, I don't want to do that. <laughs> That's too hard. That's too uncomfortable. No, thank you. It's very inconvenient, Lord. <laughs> and we do it anyway. He says, that's a godly love. He says, I want you to choose me, even when you don't feel like choosing me. He says, that's love. That shows him we really do love him. He's not interested in our emotions being correct. He's interested in us responding to his love, that we know he loves us. There is one place in Scripture where the Father actually uses the word phileo in reference to Jesus. There's only two times. Most of the time, it's always agape. The Father agapes the Son. For God so agape the world. But I really like this, and I'll tell you why. John 16, 27. This is Jesus speaking. The Father himself, phileo, loveth you, because you have phileo loved me, and have believed that I came out, of, out from God. In John 3, 35, it says this, too. The Father phileoed the Son, and hath given him all things. When I saw this, because phileo is, is usually translated brotherly love. You know, when you meet other Christians and you have this common brotherliness, family kind of thing. <laughs> we're, we're brothers and sisters. This morning I had somebody I never met. Why? Because she's my sister. There's this knowing in us. There's this, uh, the Jesus in me knows the Jesus in her. 
<laughs> and there's that family brotherly kind of love. But it can be much more intimate. Some scholars believe that when Peter denied Christ, when Jesus goes to talk to him afterward, and he says, do you love me? Do you agape me? And he's like, you know I phileo you. The word phileo there has the essence of, I cherish you above all else. Peter wasn't saying, I don't love you high enough. Peter was saying, Agape has this commitment level. Obviously, I have a problem with that. <laughs> but I love you with all my heart. I phileo you, Jesus. And Jesus says, do you agape me? Commitment? You'll do what I want you to do, even if you don't feel like it? Commitment? I really, you're so dear to me, Jesus. And Jesus says, okay. Do you phileo me? Yes! You know I phileo you! <laughs> Here you see, it's about how, how intimate the relationship was. Agape was, in that day, seen as commitment, faithfulness. We see that in marriage. Sometimes you have the ushy-gushy feelings, sometimes you don't. <laughs> Does that mean you don't love? No. You love by will. You love by choice. You love by the power of the Holy Spirit within you. Okay, so when we don't feel ooshy-gushy, doesn't mean we don't love. But the reason I like this, because when I was studying this, I never knew this before. What I saw was my daughter. I use her a lot. She knows that. <laughs> you see, when she was a baby, she was a cranky baby. She was a colicky baby. It wasn't her fault, it was mine. I smoked and drank Pepsi the whole time I was pregnant, and so she came out addicted. So she was a very unhappy baby. All my fault. <laughs> I was not saved at the time. But I would have to get up with a colicky baby over and over and over, night after night after night, and you're just like, please, please go to sleep. <laughs> but you are not feeling ushy-gushy, I love you so much. <laughs> That's the closest we understand God's kind of parental love for us. That it's not about how ushy-gushy he feels that moves him. It is his commitment to me. It is his faithfulness to me. That no matter how often I cry out, he is right there. Because it's not about how he feels, it's about how much he loves, how much he agapes me, that he will never leave me, he will never forsake me. But you know what? She grew up. And you know what we have now? An equal love. She's not my child who needs me all the time. She's my friend. She's my familiar friend. Do we still agape each other? Absolutely. But now there is this wishy-gushy friendship. Jesus called his disciples my friends. That was his point. He said, there's this equality, this equalness. I have the ushy gushies for you. <laughs> I just really like that. Because agape, even though it has the commitment level and the I'll never leave you nor forsake you, it still does include the ushy gushy. God gushes over us. In Zephaniah, I think it is, he says, I rejoice over you with singing. He is delighted with us. His heart is full of love, but it's also full of commitment. That it doesn't matter how he feels. If his feelings were to change, his commitment never would. Uh -huh. Now, we're going to actually look at this in light of the parable of the Good Samaritan. In Luke 10.25, it says this, Behold, a certain lawyer, who was an expert in the law, 
stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it tells us right here the man's motive. Does the man really want to know how to get to heaven? No. He's trying to trick Jesus, because he's an expert in the law. And they are always looking to try to trip him up. And Jesus says to him, Okay, what is written in the law? You're the expert. You tell me. What is your reading of it? And so he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. And all of us grace people go, What? <laughs> Was Jesus right, though? Oh, yeah. If you can keep the law perfectly, that will work for you. Can you keep the law perfectly? Not going to work for you. Okay? So Jesus is like, you're right. You're absolutely right. If you can love God with all of that you are and your neighbor as yourself, that will qualify you for heaven. So, he's now not tripped Jesus up. So now he's got to think of another question. <laughs> now I look really bad because I didn't make you look bad. So let me see what else I can say. You see, he figured as a self-righteous Jew, I do love God with all that I am. I do love my neighbor with all that I am. However, that all depends on what you define neighbor as. <laughs> you see, to a Jew, his neighbor was a Jew. His neighbor didn't include anybody other than a Jew. It didn't include Samaritans. It didn't include Gentiles. The only ones that were Jew neighbors were Jews. So he says to Jesus, wanting to justify himself and make himself look like he's innocent, he says, Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? <laughs> okay, I'll let you define it, Jesus. I love what Jesus does. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. He's like, no, 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 I'm in charge. Just let you answer the question since you like questions so much. <laughs> and Jesus said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, Go and do likewise. The qualification of neighbor there, you have to love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Not as, as is convenient, as is might be preferable. You have to love your neighbor the same way you would love and take care of yourself. This man so despised Samaritans, he wouldn't even say the word. When Jesus says, who was the neighbor? He's like, the one who showed mercy. He wouldn't even say the word Samaritan. <laughs> That's how much prejudice and hatred they had for Samaritans. Now, if he could actually have fulfilled the law. See, love is fulfilling the law. In Matthew 22, 37, Jesus says this. 
Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He says if you love with God's kind of love, you would actually be fulfilling the law. When it says that this man, a man, we know it's a Jew. Okay, when he's telling the story. Now Jesus is just painting a picture. This isn't something that actually happened. He's just painting a picture. And he says, Amen. Now we know that would be a Jew, because if it wasn't a Jew, you would call it by name. Okay, because everybody else would make you unclean. So we know that Jesus is saying, this is a Jewish man. Now, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem was 3,500 feet above Jericho. So going down to Jericho was no easy feat. And Jericho, it was a bedroom community. It was a suburb of Jerusalem. That's where most of the priests and Levites lived. Now, to get from Jerusalem down to Jericho, you had to go what was called the Bloody Way. Because it was so steep, there was lots of mountainous terrain, very dangerous, and the paths through there, all these mountainous crags and caves and all of that, were very suited for robbers. So lay in wait for people and to rob them and kill them. So it was, it was so prevalent, they actually called it the Bloody Way. I think it's really interesting that this man, this lawyer, never interrupts Jesus and says, that would never happen. <laughs> they knew the priests and the Levites. So he says, robbers have gotten this man. They've stripped him, he's beaten him, he's leaving him half dead. The first one comes along is a priest. Now the priest is the man who offers sacrifices, who understands the law to the max. This would be a huge violation of the law to see a man, a Jew, beaten and bloody and half dead, and to leave him there. In Exodus 23, 14, it says this, If you meet your enemy's ox, or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. He's saying, if God so cares about your enemy's animals, what does God care about your enemy? It was a big, big no-no for a Jew to do nothing. It was considered a great sin to see somebody who needed your help and to do nothing. And yet the priest in this story walks right on by and does nothing. In fact, he goes to the opposite side of the road. So the man laying there, half dead, probably thought, here comes a priest. He knows the law. He knows he can't leave me here. And he knows thou shalt love the Lord thy God and thy neighbor as thyself. He can't leave me here. And yet he does. And then along comes a Levite, also works at the temple, knows the law. Knows thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all that you are and your neighbor as yourself. He can't legally, by the law, leave me here. I'm rescued. No. <laughs> Other side of the road. I mean, it's interesting because people always say, well, they didn't want to get defiled or whatever. They were coming down. They weren't going up. That's important. Because see, if they were going up to temple for their duties, they wouldn't want to be defiled. But they were done with their duties and they were going home. They didn't want to be inconvenient. Then, the dreaded Samaritan. <laughs> the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans was enormous. They both worshipped the same God and had the same five books of the Pentateuch. The um, Samaritans were a mixed breed. They mixed with Gentiles. But they had the same law and the same God. And they each thought the other was completely wrong. <laughs> so they never talked to each other. They hated each other with a passion. So here comes a Samaritan. What is the man laying there half dead going to think? 
Oh no, the priests passed by, the, the Levites passed by, and now there's a Samaritan. I'm as good as dead, because a Samaritan will never help a Jew. But you see, he had the same God and the same laws. He knew he was supposed to love the Lord his God with all that he was, and his neighbor as himself. This was a real insult to the Jew he was talking to. And it says the Samaritan had compassion. If you're supposed to rescue your enemy's donkey, you're supposed to rescue your enemy. Uh, and then it says that the Samaritan went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn. What this would look like, I want you to see the picture. This man is broken, bleeding, and half dead. I mean, he's not just scuffed up, okay? He's got gashes and bruises and broken bones. They practically killed him. But he's got nothing. It says he's naked. He's got no provisions, nothing, no money, nothing. No, he can't get anything from this guy. There's no return here. <laughs> but he's going to have to invest a whole lot. He's going to invest his oil and his wine. Not cheap. And not just a little bit. He wasn't just dabbing cuts and bruises. He was pulling on the wine to cleanse all the wounds, to disinfect them. And then he was lavishly pouring on the oil and bandaging him up with the bandages from probably his own clothes. This man is going way beyond the extra mile. He is pouring out a of love. And then he puts him on his own animal. And if it's 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho, we don't know where on there he was, but it wasn't, it wasn't a couple blocks away. He walked. He walked. The man who was beaten rode. It says the next day he took him to an inn and he took care of him. And then it says the next day he took out to him. It means he spent the entire night with this man. In those days, an inn was the bottom level of a building where he kept his animals. It would be the kind of inn that Jesus would have went and been turned away from. When travelers came with their animals, everything went into the inn. Because you didn't leave your animals out where people could steal them. So it was donkeys and mules and camels and babies and it was everything. <laughs> okay, so this man took him to an inn and stayed with him all night, ministering to him. This is a copy of And then, this is amazing, he gives the, the innkeeper two denarii. That was two days' wages. Two days' wages which would have paid for between six and eight weeks of him staying in the inn. And if that wasn't enough, a little lavish, isn't it? That's lavish. <laughs> he says, oh, um, by the way, I want to open an account. Give him a charge account. Whatever he needs, I want him to have it. Whatever he needs, that's agape love. So what the point of this story is to show the, the lawyer how impossible it is to keep the law. You see, Jesus always knows the right medicine to give us. If we are broken, if we see that we cannot meet the standard of the law, he gives you grace. But if we think we are good enough by what we do, he's going to give us law. Then he's going to show you the full extent of it. He's not going to say, well, if you try hard, you can reach it. He wants you to see, this is impossible for you to do all by yourself. You can't love like this without help. That was the point of the story. The man, if he were smart, he would have said, I think I might be in trouble here. <laughs> I think maybe I haven't been keeping the law. He didn't think about the fact that he might be the neighbor someday who needed someone to have a godly love for him. What did the Samaritan get out of all that he did? Nothing. He loved without thought of return. 
He got nothing out of it, except he knew he was loving God with all that he was. What we do to our neighbor or don't do to our neighbor, Jesus says, you've done them to me. What we do is what love is. Now, what if there's more to the story than just that? What if Jesus was hiding something for us to see? You see, this story would have been told over and over and over again. There are three times in the Gospels where it says, and then the disciples remembered. They would remember, oh, that's what Jesus meant by that. <laughs> because he, they were always not getting it. <laughs> he was telling them straight, they still weren't getting it. So after he was risen from the dead, they would go, oh, yeah, he said that. They began to see what he had said. I think this story has that application. There's something for us to see now that he wanted us to see. You see, I didn't really come to the saving knowledge of Christ until I was a young adult. But I went to Sunday school, and I taught Sunday school, and the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is about be good to your neighbor, love your neighbor. Is that in there? Sure it is. Yeah. It's so much more. Let's look at this story a little differently. What if the story is really about the question the man asked? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Because if you know the story, you might see a different picture. What if the story isn't about just a man not the script? What if it's about Adam? What if there's a man who got beat up and was left half dead? The only place in the New Testament where we see this word is right here. It's a very strange word, half dead. But what happened to Adam? He fell. Great fall from Jerusalem to Jericho. <laughs> it was a bloody way. <laughs> okay? He was beaten, stripped of everything, and left half dead. We know that when God said to Adam and Eve, when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. He ate, but he didn't physically die. He died spiritually. So you might say he half died. Because he would die physically later. But it's just an interesting correlation. That Adam was basically what we would call half dead. He was spiritually dead, but physically alive. Unbelievers are half dead. They're dead to God. They're dead to Christ. They cannot. They have no life in them. Life is Jesus Christ. So technically, we could say they were half dead because they're physically alive. The robbers, what do they represent? They represent sin and Satan who stole everything from Adam, leaving him completely naked. They stripped him of his glory and his dominion and his power and left him naked. And here this man on the side of the road has been beaten and robbed and stripped of everything and is naked. He lost his spiritual connection to God and he suddenly knew he was naked. Adam fell a great fall from paradise, Jerusalem, to Jericho, the place of thorns and thistles and the kingdom of darkness. So, there's Adam on the side of the road. There's us on the side of the road before we found Christ. What did the priests and the Levites represent? The sacrifices and the laws of the Old Covenant. It says in the story that they went on the other opposite, the opposite side. There was no way the law and the sacrifices could bring him life. Laws and sacrifices can't heal you. Laws and sacrifices can't save you. They, they are completely opposite. And who is the Good Samaritan? It's Jesus. 
Yes, you know, Jesus was actually accused of being a Samaritan. And you're a Samaritan and a demon-possessed. And he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so here, you see, there was no such thing in, in a Jew's mind of a good Samaritan. It didn't exist. But Jesus came as the good Samaritan. He is thought of as an enemy. Romans 5.10 says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God never thought we were his enemy. God never made himself our enemy. We made ourselves enemies to God. Because we were naked and we lost our glory, we lost our connection, we were afraid of him. We made ourselves an enemy. So when Adam sees Jesus, <laughs> he knows he's half dead. He's lost his connection. But First John 1, 7 says this, If you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. The word there, cleanses, is in the present continuous tense. It says, once we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, he continuously cleans us up. We are always right in his sight. And not only does, does he give us life and cleanse us from our wounds, he also heals us. First Peter 2.24 says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. When I was reading this, this picture has been around a long time. Since the early church fathers, this kind of teaching was taught. I had never heard it before, a few years ago. And as I began to look at this picture, because that's what it's supposed to do, you're supposed to see yourself in the picture, because that's what we do when we hear stories. Oh, that's just like me. Oh, that happened in my life. We see ourselves. We're supposed to see ourselves. We're supposed to see ourselves. Satan has stripped us and beaten us up and left us half dead. And here comes someone we think is our enemy. And he comes with compassion. And he comes with everything we need to be healed and restored. In the story, what I saw, I saw the man. I saw the Good Samaritan get down on his hands and knees and pour out all of his own condition and lavishly pour out his blood, cleansing every part of us. And I saw him pour on the oil. He wasn't dabbing it. He was pouring it out. He poured out his spirit at Pentecost. He poured out his love into our hearts. He has poured out who he is to give us his life. It says that he put the man on the donkey. And I said, you know, I really like this picture work, but I don't see, I don't see the death of Christ. I get the picture, but where's the death of Christ? And the Lord said, what? And he showed me. He showed me, he reached down, and he picked up this man who was broken and bleeding. And <laughs> To pick up a full-grown man, you've got to take the entire weight on yourself. You've got to feel his brokenness. You've got to feel his hurt. You've got to get his blood on you. You've got to bear the full weight of who and what has happened to him. That is the cross. When Jesus took humanity on himself and he felt everything that we have been through, he knows the pain we have. He knows what Satan has done. He knows what we've done to ourselves. 
And he bore the full weight of that. And just like it says in Scripture, after Jesus took the full weight and paid the full price and poured out the Holy Spirit, rose from the dead, all of that, he seated us in his own seat at the right hand of the Father. What do we see in this picture? Jesus picks up this man. He's bound up his wounds. He's taken the full weight on himself. And he places him on his feet, on his hands. And then he leads him. When we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, and he takes all of our stuff away. And he cleanses all of us from all of our sins. And he gives us his life by his Holy Spirit. Then he seats us at the right hand of the Father. And then he leads us. He leads us. In this story, the Good Samaritan leads the broken man to an end. And then there's really a good picture of the church. <laughs> Everyone is welcome. Everyone can come in. And then just like Jesus, he pays the innkeeper, which would be a pastor. He says, I'm going to give you everything you need to take care of those who are broken and bleeding and blind. That is the story of the Good Samaritan. In Isaiah 53, it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. We never see the good Samaritan asking for anything. Jesus gives all that he is and all that he does for free as a gift. He doesn't do it to get you to do anything. Several years ago, I had to learn this lesson again, loving without Father's return. I had a family member who had turned away from us, wanted nothing to do with us, very cold, family member very dear in my heart. They had children, and they wanted us to be able to know their children, so we'd be able to go see them several times a year. And we would get together for our birthday or our Christmas, and you could tell there was walls all around, very distant, very cold. And I would leave there and cry for two or three weeks because the one I loved rejected me again. And this went on <laughs> for several years. We only saw them on special occasions. We were not warmly welcomed, especially me. It hurts to love somebody who doesn't love you back. On the way to see them, I'm like, okay, Lord. <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> I'm going to be broken and bloody when I'm done. <laughs> Lord Jesus, what do I do? And the Lord said, you're doing the same thing you did before. You think if you love them long enough and hard enough and strong enough, they'll love you back. you got to love without thought of return. That's the only kind of love that points anybody to Christ when they know there's no strings attached. That you can't stop me from loving you. You can't prevent me from loving you. You can reject me. You can pull out my beard. You can spit in my face, but I will still love you. No matter what you do to me, I will still love you. You can't make me stop. I won't be rejected. God said, love them like that. Love them like that. 
going there looking for no sign of acceptance, no sign of warmness, no sign. You're not looking to receive. You're looking there to give. You got to use your agape love. You got to decide that I will love you even if you never love me. And so I did. It wasn't easy. Do you know what? I started crying less. It didn't take me two or three weeks to recover anymore. Two or three days, it's been good. <laughs> it's a big improvement. Because I knew I was no longer loving them so that they would love me back. It was all about, I'm going to give what is best and highest and good for you. And even if I never do anything in return, I have shown my father that I am his child. I look like my Jesus. I love like my Jesus. I love without father's return. And you can't stop it. <laughs> Over a period of time, things started to change. We were allowed to be there more often. We <laughs> were getting little polite hugs. <laughs> this past Christmas, we saw this family. And I get now. I love you, Mom. Because I decided, no matter what you do, no matter how you hurt me, you can't stop me from loving you and seeking what's best and highest for you. Jesus gave us a new commandment. The law said, love your neighbor as yourself. That was impossible. I'll give you one better. The new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another without thought of return. He has not called us to be loved. He has called us to be love to everyone. First John three sixteen says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our life for our brother. He took on the full weight of our humanity, so we could have the full weight of the Godhead. That we could be love and show people Christ. Because the only way they'll ever see him is by what we do. Love is kind. Love is gentle. Love does keep no record of wrong. Love suffers long. But love never fails. You have that love. We can't go by how we feel. We have to go by our will. The will of our Father. That we should love the same way we have been loved. Those who are hurt, hurt people. They're broken, they're bloody, and Satan has robbed them. And their only hope is the good news of the Good Samaritan, who has poured out everything we have need of. Amen. Father God, I thank you for your amazing love. I thank you for your amazing fullness, that we have the power of the Godhead in us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if it were even possible for one of you to run short of love, <laughs> which is not, the other two would make it up. You are a God who is love, who never runs out of love, who always loves no matter what. Father God, you have given us your ability to love. Help us, Father God, to be strong enough to make the decision to love no matter what, so that others will see you and receive you so that others will let you bind up their wounds. That they will understand that you took their sorrows and their griefs, that you have taken on everything 
that has happened to them. And your love is the only love that can heal a human heart and a human life. And Father, I thank you that you have healed us and you have given us your very life. In Jesus' name, amen.